It is such a great joy for us to be able to worship with you today. We visit many churches, but I don't think any church surpasses you in your singing. Singing praise to God with great joy and fervor, and that's wonderful. We're very thankful for the faithful testimony of this church, and as a seminary professor, I'm so thankful for the investment you make in our students through their participation in your church and being interns and You've even hired a couple, which is a great service as well, and I'm sure you're blessed through that. Uh, I'm going to do the scripture reading, kind of working through the passage as we go, and I want to give you a bit of an introduction to where we're going. And I want to raise a question, which would be, what is your great passion or your dream in life? Where do you want your life to go? I mean, like January, we do New Year's resolutions. Okay, I want to lose weight by next year. I want to be more regular in this or that. But where, at the end of your life even, what what do you want to have accomplished that really matters? It's like in Psalm 90, establish the work of our hands. Well, I deal with seminary students, and they come to seminary often at great sacrifice. And there's a desire. They want to be pastors. They want to be missionaries. They want to plant churches. They want to do campus ministry. Uh, within the church. Churches like yours, you look to planting other churches, sending out missionaries, uh, building more useful facilities, training up people to send them out. But it's not just ministry that's significant. We all have different vocations as we participate in subduing the earth. And there are people here who want to establish businesses. And through those businesses, they'll be productive, which is a blessing to culture. They will be giving employment to others, producing products that benefit others, and hopefully giving generously to the work of the Lord. So those are also great ambitions. And then I'm so happy the children in the worship service today. Children have ambition too, don't they? What what do you always ask a child? What do you want to be when you grow up? And sometimes it's more immediate where you have things in your music or your sports or your grades. Uh, You have hopes for the future. Uh, those who are a little older, what college am I going to get into? What vocation will I pursue? Again, I think these are all good things. I'll mention a couple more. Uh, some of us are older, and we may have some regrets that we haven't done all the things we hoped we would do, but also we have a sense for our children our grandchildren, the dreams we have for them. And since it's Sanctity of Life Sunday, I would mention even in the pro-life movement, I remember when I was in college in 1976, and in speech class, I gave a speech against abortion and for life. And many people for the last 50 years since Roe versus Wade have had a dream to see abortion reduced. We thought, oh boy, we won the Supreme Court thing, now it's going to be better. It's not yet. Uh, Dreams don't always work out, which is actually kind of the point of the passage today. And we're going to be in 2 Samuel 7. This is one of the most important passages in the entire scriptures. And I'm not going to comprehensively deal with it. I'm going to deal with a particular aspect of it. But the context is that David is at his absolute pinnacle. He's king over Israel. Jerusalem is established as the capital. And in this passage, David has this desire to build a temple. And yet David's plan is not God's plan. And as we go through the passage, there are three things I like to do when I'm in the Old Testament, and I love Old Testament narrative. First, we just need to explain what's going on, because they're living in a different covenant era than we are. Second, we want to show how these things point to Christ. 
In Luke 24, Jesus went through the Old Testament and showed how all these things point to him. This passage is really easy for that in the Davidic covenant. And then the third is, the, the New Testament says, these things were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so it's profitable for us in living wisely according to the word of God. So I have three main points. The first is a question to you. Do you want to do something great for God? That's what David wanted, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Now, if you've been reading all the way through First and Second Samuel, when it says, that the Lord had given David rest on every side, this is something quite amazing. Uh, David has been fighting Goliath, fighting the Philistines, running from Saul, trying to kill him, dealing with civil war. And finally, David has come to a point of rest. Most of the enemies, the Philistines and others, have been subdued. The civil war is now over, and things are finally calm. But even more so that this word rest is a covenant hope of Israel. In Deuteronomy, there was a promise, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord God gives you as an inheritance to possess. And so uh, this is something remarkable. This is something wonderful. And of course, the concept of rest is also one that carries over into the New Testament, where Christ is the one who gives us the ultimate rest that God has promised. So David is in this time of prosperity, And he has this desire to build what we would call the temple, uh, housing for the ark of God. And he actually seems kind of embarrassed. I have a nice palace, a house of cedar, and yet we're just keeping the ark of God, which represents his presence among us, as, you know, in intense. And he wants to do better. Now, his expectation is not with foundation. Deuteronomy 12, the Lord described the time when his people would be settled and there would be a particular place established for his worship. And, of course, we know that with the Lord's guidance, his son Solomon ultimately builds a temple. So it's not a bad idea. And it's especially a wonderful idea as you think of David's desire compared to other ancient Near Eastern kings. His desire in this time of prosperity is not in increasing the greatness of the name of David, but rather to bring glory to God. He says in the psalm, I could, take, I could have no rest until there was a place for the temple of God. And, and you contrast him with someone like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. You know, Is this not Babylon the great city I have built and full of arrogance? And, and David instead recognizes, you know, what shall I render to God for all that he's done for me? Not building a great monument to himself, but doing something to the glory of God. And he does something wise. He goes to Nathan, the prophet. This is the first appearance of Nathan. He'll appear later under less enjoyable circumstances. Um, And David asks his advice. And Nathan says, go, do all that is in your mind. The Lord is with you. Now, you know what's coming. David's not going to be the one to build the temple. He said, well, isn't Nathan a prophet? Can prophets be wrong? I thought prophets were infallible. Actually, prophecy is infallible. In Deuteronomy 18, when someone speaks as a prophet, speaking for God, thus says the Lord, it is perfectly true if it's of God. But Nathan, who is a prophet, is really just speaking from his own opinion. Yeah, sounds like a great idea. 
the analogy would be maybe Nathan's wife asked him, you think it's going to rain tomorrow? And he might say no, and he might be wrong because he's not receiving revelation from God and conveying it to others. He just notices, as we see in chapter 5, that God has been with David and all that David does. So he said, this sounds like a great idea. So before we move on to the next section, a couple of points of application. One would be, how do you handle prosperity? Uh, the proverb says, give you neither poverty nor riches. We're warned in First Timothy 6 that those who are rich should not trust in riches. And for many of us, it's harder to be faithful to God in the midst of plenteous blessings than in times of hardship. And yet, as we see how God has been good to us, and by the way, we are all prosperous. When you look at our brothers and sisters around the world in many places, China, India, we have these freedoms, we have economic prosperity, we have many, many other gifts from God. And it's good for us as well to think of that prosperity as an opportunity to serve the Lord. Uh, the reason we're in this beautiful building today, the reason I have a lovely seminary facility in which to teach and in which I get paid to do what I love is because people who are prosperous have chosen to use their prosperity to the glory of God. Uh, buildings like this and the seminary were not built by people making minimum wage. It's as people were prosperous, as they produced, they worked hard, they worked smart, they were productive, that they chose to use their prosperity for the glory of God to work towards his kingdom. And that's a good thing. And that's something we should emulate. And I would add, in another respect, well, I don't have lots of money. Well, you have time, you have abilities, you have gifts that God has given you. Uh, another aspect would be, I love many times you see Christian men or couples, and they reach an age of retirement, and they think, well, boy, now I don't need to earn money anymore. I have a pension. I have enough saved. I'm getting Social Security. Why not, when I'm 60 or 65, whatever it may be, use these latter years of my life to serve in the church without having to be paid? Even I've known people to go and do missions and other such things. So uh, using their time of blessing to the glory of God, as God has blessed us, it should make us want to be rich in good works and to use the blessing for his glory. Another application of these first three verses is that even wise counselors can be wrong. And I say this as the director of the counseling program. Uh, David did a good thing. The proverb says, in abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. It's a good thing for David to have asked Nathan's opinion. But we have to weigh the opinions of others against the word of God. Now, typically when we're doing that, it's the word we already have. In this case, the word is about to come in verse 4, a different word than what David and Nathan were thinking. Perhaps Nathan could have been a little more careful in terms of the advice he gave. But in terms of our seeking advice, in terms of our giving advice, there's a principle here, and that is we need to distinguish between when we're speaking on God's behalf from Scripture and when we're giving our own opinion. And so I can say to someone, the Bible says six days you shall work, and it says if you will not work, you shall not eat. And so you should get a job. You're an able-bodied person. And, and that's something I think I could say from the Bible, and it has the authority of God's word behind it. But then I, if I say, well, Amazon is hiring, uh, you're okay to go there, but I can't command you to go to Amazon. You could also go work somewhere else. The point is go to work. Uh, in marriage, I can say marriage is a good thing, but it's not always God's will that everybody be married. Uh, my wife sometimes likes to do a little matchmaking. She's had some remarkable successes. 
but even then, you can say, well, you might look at this person, but I could never say it's God's will that you marry this person. So when people give us advice, we need to be careful to distinguish between opinions and what comes from Scripture. And when we give advice, and this is a big deal for counselors and pastors and those in authority, because you're kind of looked upon as someone who's a professional advice giver of some kind, I think we need to be very careful to distinguish between this seems like a good idea, which is what Nathan said, as opposed to here's what the Scripture says with all the authority that God has. So, first point is, you know, question to us, do you want to do something great for God? David wanted to do something great for God. But then the second point is, your plan, your dream may not be God's plan. As we continue in verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt. Even to this day, I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever have I gone with all the saints of Israel, sons of Israel, that I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And so, as David had originally been advised by Nathan, sounds like a good idea, is God now gives infallible revelation. David is told, perhaps to his disappointment, you're not the one to build the temple. Now, as we're going to go on in verses 8 to 17, which we won't cover in as much detail, we have, instead of David building the temple, we get the Davidic covenant, which is something wonderful. But here, the Lord is essentially declaring his self-sufficiency, that he doesn't need us to do things for him. He's also saying, David has not been disobedient not to make a temple for me. Later on, when the temple is built, Solomon declares how heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Uh, Elsewhere, we're told in 1 Chronicles 22 that David says that because he was a man of war, God did not choose him, but then it became Solomon's privilege. But in the midst of this rejection of David's dream, the Lord also affirms David. And the very name he gives David in verse 5, go say to my servant David. This word servant is also very important in the scriptures. Abraham was the servant of God. Moses was the servant of God. And of course, most importantly, as you look in the book of Isaiah, the servant is Christ. And He is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so even though David's plan, his dream is rejected, David is not rejected. And David is affirmed, and then what's going to happen next, that even his desire to build the temple is good. In verses 12 and 13, he says, when your days are complete, uh, your son, verse 13, will build a house for my name. And so It just wasn't David's to do. But David is absolutely affirmed it's going to come more as we go. So application, again, not all of our dreams are God's will, even if our intentions are very good. And you you may want to be married. You may want to have children. You may want to do a certain kind of ministry. And you may have a great passion for this. Just having the passion doesn't mean it's God's will. Part of the challenge, actually, in seminary is students come in with dreams and hopes and desires, and some exceed even the dreams they had and the way God blesses, and in some cases their lives don't turn out as they had originally thought. 
I have uh, two couples that are very close to us, and they both decided to, they wanted to be missionaries. They wanted to be missionaries in very hard places, places I would not want to live, places I would hardly want to visit, and they were willing to do that. And yet, with all the desire they had, uh, the Lord closed the doors, and they did not go, and that had to be so hard for them. Uh, sometimes you may even have a, a dream and a desire, and you may have other people like Nathan saying, that sounds like a great idea for you to be a pastor, for you to start a business, uh, whatever your hope may be. Even their encouragement is not necessarily God's will. Uh, sometimes we may have perfectly good and wise desires and ambitions, and he just has something else. It's like in James 4, if you desire to build a business, You have to say, if the Lord wills. Now, the positive side, as we're going to continue going, is that God, who is sovereign, may have something different and better for you than whatever you thought it was going to be. Along with that is the Lord was declaring his self-sufficiency to David. We just also need to be reminded that God does not need us. Um, He is self-sufficient. And it's good that we have the privilege of participating in his work, But we can never put him in our debt, and his work will not fail if we don't get to do what we think we're supposed to do. He will get done everything he is determined to do. So, first point, do you want to do something great for God? That's good, like David. But your plan may not be God's plan. David's dream, a great dream, affirmed by others, is still not God's plan. But then the third point is the happy part, is that Rather than you having the dream to do something great for God, it's actually God who does great things for you. And continuing in verse 8, the Lord through Nathan says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall never depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And the word in there that really captures my attention is the word house. And it's interesting, in the Hebrew, the word house is like we can use it in English. It can be a physical building, which is what David had in mind to build, but it also can be a dynasty, uh, like the House of Windsor or something And so David began by saying, I want to build a house for God. And then in verse 11, the Lord says, the Lord declares that the Lord will make a house for you. It's not what you're going to do for me. It's what I'm going to do for you. 
And as I said, we won't go through the details of the Davidic covenant today, but just kind of as a broad overview of these overwhelming blessings. And David's response in the next section is just, who am I? This is amazing, far more than he could have imagined. And uh, Bruce Waltke, as he divides these up, you you see three of these blessings he would say are to David, uh, four kind of are fulfilled in Solomon, three are more remote in Christ. It's all kind of overlapping. Uh, But he begins, the Lord has already done great things for David. David was chosen uh, from lowliness in his family to be the ruler. Uh, The Lord has been with David through many trials, and now David's name is great and will be greater. We all know David's name, and he would be great among all the people in the earth. And then even when David was gone, the Lord would continue to bless his house, that Israel would gain security in the land. And you're looking ahead to Solomon uh, and that the temple would be built. And something, of course, special here is that verse 15, my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. And as you read through First and Second Kings and you read about how the kings acted, when Saul was unfaithful, the kingdom was stripped away from him. But the promise to David is even when Solomon fails and then the other descendants of David fail, God's hand upon David's house and his determination to build David's house never diminishes. It never goes away. So it's, it's an amazing, wonderful promise. And, and through David, Israel's established as world power. These things are fulfilled. David's dynasty rules in Judah for 400 years. And then finally, as they are chastised by men and they have time of exile, even then the Lord sustains David's line. And you can get the genealogies in the New Testament. And a lot of those guys in the latter part of the genealogy of Jesus, we don't know who those guys are, but it's God's faithfulness in keeping the Davidic line all the way through. And in the time of exile, in the time of very small things after the exile, uh, as the house of David had been reduced to a stump, uh, the Lord God of hosts will lop off the bowels with a terrible crash, the prophet said. But then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Amos 9, and that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And from the standpoint of believing Israelites, uh, in the years after David, even the years of, of exile and years of oppression, these promises always stand, reflected in Psalm 89. And then, of course, ultimately this is fulfilled in Christ, that David will have a son who will reign forever. When Christ comes, uh, the angel says he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The Son of God, chastised for our iniquity, building a house, as he said, my church, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are now God's household, we are now God's holy temple as his people, And he will reign forever and ever. His kingdom, as it says in Hebrews 1, is everlasting. So how does the Davidic covenant uh, relate to us today? Well, one aspect in terms of my line going through this is that it's what God has done for us in his sovereign plan, which is what matters more even than our dreams to serve him. We also see as all these promises are fulfilled in Christ, It gives us hope. 
I mean, right now, you I mean you think about Sanctity of Life Sunday, and you think that abortion goes on, and political losses mount up, and in other places in the world it's even worse, and we feel like we're losing. We're concerned about oppression against those who have a faith like ours, not just in other countries, but here. Whatever may happen, God will keep his promise. In the darkest day, when Israel was at its absolute weakest, still God was going to raise up Christ, and, was, and, and Christ is coming again. And all these promises will be perfectly fulfilled, and we will reign with him forever, no matter what the appearance may be in the present. God is faithful to his covenant, as he was to David in the coming of Christ, so he is to us as the heirs of that, as we look forward to Christ coming again. Another application, since we had a marriage conference, would be, as we see how faithful God is to his covenant with David, in spite of David's failures, Solomon's failures, uh, the history of the kings, we should be like unto God in our covenants. That's the great covenant we make in this life for most of us, the, the vows of marriage we offer. We should be likewise faithful for better, for worse, rich or poor, sickness and in health, that we've, we've made these promises, and it's actually a picture of God's relationship to us. And we should strive as God helps us to fulfill them. So, uh, three major ideas in this passage we've sought to draw out. First is just, you know, do you have a desire, a dream to do something great? Great for God, great for the glory of God. That's, that's wonderful. But your plan may not be God's plan, as it was in the case of David. Just because you feel that way, just because other people encourage you, it's not always what God is going to do. But the good news is that it's what God does for you. And God's plan for you is better than your plan. And he will use you for his glory in ways you may not imagine. And then, as I look at this passage, is another meditation upon how the gospel is here. It occurs to me that every religion on earth is about what we do for God. And my wife and I lived in Saudi Arabia for six years. And those people are doing all kinds of things, trying to think they've done enough for God to somehow have earned their way to heaven. We've been in countries like the Philippines, where people under a guise of Christianity, again, they think they have to do enough for God so that when they stand before him, they've not done too many bad works, they've done enough good works, and the balance is in their favor. And, of course, we know that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The Bible is not primarily about what we do for God. The Bible is about what God has done for us. When we were helpless, when we were dead in our sins, God sent his son. And God, through his spirit, made us alive to believe in him who came. And he has accomplished everything for our salvation. There's nothing we do. With the faith he gives us, we trust in him. And we rely upon his work and not our own. And then the work we do for God is not to earn his favor because Christ has already perfectly earned God's favor. Our sin has been removed. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. And now we serve God, not as a way of earning our way as so many other religions do, but just out of gratitude and love for him who has done everything for us. It's not what we do for God. It's what he has done for us. That's the focus of our worship today. And then, yes, we do go forth in in love and in gratitude seeking to do for him, as David had a good desire, submitting our desires and our plans and our hopes to him. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that everything written is profitable for us, for our instruction. You know the particular thoughts of people in this room. If there are people who are today living with shattered dreams, help them to trust in you. Help them to look to how you may choose to use them differently than they thought or planned and to rejoice in that and to be content in that. Father, if there be anyone here who came in thinking that they could do enough for you to merit your favor, that they would repent of that because we can't be saved by keeping the law. We are incapable. We, as we've confessed today, we've not loved you with all of our heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We need mercy, and we thank you that Christ has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, is he gave his life on the cross to turn away your just wrath from us, and then we have his perfect righteousness bestowed upon us by your grace. Lord, help each one of us today to humbly acknowledge what matters is what you have done for us, and with the empty hands of faith to receive that and to rejoice in it. And then, Lord, as those who have been so blessed, help us to be useful in your way, according to your plan, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.